0: Hello and welcome to another one of our podcasts. This is Books of the Year. With, it is. Hang on, I haven't done. Oh a right, you have going to do your thing, yeah. This is Books of the Year with W. H. Smith. Yes, thank you. You can't interrupt. <laughs> if you interrupt halfway through,
1: yeah, that does. Then
0: uh, w. Some... H. Will get on the phone. They saying, will be. Hang on a second. We're Mr. not giving you. We're not going to give you all that support, are <laughs> no, we? No. So this is your Books of the Year podcast from W. H. Smith.
1: We've mentioned them, so that's it. Now is that it? Oh, okay. yeah, yeah. Uh anyway, and, and here
0: we are with a couple of fine guests on the way. John Boyne, who is the most prolific uh of writers?
1: He seems he seems to have one out all the time, like once a yeah. year, which is ridiculous. Uh
0: Boy in the Striped Pajamas, maybe the most famous, although Hearts Invisible Fury is was which is his last book, that was epic uh and huge, that was a big hit. And Sean Usher has done speeches of note, he did letters of note, so there's yeah, another that, yeah. uh, so, so so more of those, and they're coming on uh, very shortly. Thank you very much, Steve, for all the correspondence uh, which you've been sending in.
1: Yes, uh, Rosalie Darby uh, emailed into booksoftheyear at yahoo.com That is our email. Is it really? uh, yes, it is. Okay. Um, hello, Simon and Matt. Sebastian Foulkes, uh who was obviously on a, our previous podcast, has given me the perfect excuse, should I ever need to escape from my husband? Who would have known that the simple act of writing a book could offer such a splendid cover story for getting that well-needed break away from your other half? I'm consequently planning my th- first novel and only hope I will be met with that same understanding when I jet off for a few months of research uh, I would also like to offer a review if I may uh, as you like that sort of thing The Dream Wife a crime thriller by debut author Louisa DeLange uh, had me hooked from the beginning Housewife Annie is a woman controlled by mind games and violence but kept sane by the love of her young son the way Delang draws you into this character's life makes it all too easy to justify the crime she wants to commit but it was the whole idea of lucid dreaming a state in which you Can Control Your Dreams, which I found particularly enjoyable as I wondered whether uh, or where Annie's dreams would take me next. Uh, look forward to many more podcasts to come. Well, so do we. Uh, Rachel says, Simon,
0: thank you for asking Sebastian my book-related question. His answer was interesting. I have to say I wondered what Mrs. Folks thought about wanting to go to Moscow and St. Petersburg to party with all the pretty girls. He's such an interesting and charming man. What a voice too. Uh, that was very easy listening. We should say, by the way, that if, you, uh, if you've if you only just discovered uh, this podcast, thanks for being late to the party. But you anyway, uh, Sebastian Folks. Uh, has been on the most recent one. Robbie Williams is up there. Yeah. Uh, we did some chat with him. And ben Andy Rose, Plant. who yes. was a
1: speechwriter for President Obama. He was, we did, had a great historical fiction one with uh, Amanda Scott and uh, Tracy Borman. Uh, so they're all up there. So download them all and then
0: uh, tell your friends. Isabel Walker says, love the Kate Atkinson interview. Transcription is a subtle and intriguing story. When I first started it, I wasn't too sure about it. Uh, There were things that didn't make sense to me and I couldn't tell whether that was deliberate or not. Even so, it kept me captivated. Since finishing the book, I can't stop thinking about it and now I just want to read again. Uh, Isabel Walker, thank you very
1: much. Uh, Chris Hughes from Manchester. Hi Matt and Simon, just a note to recommend a series of books and to say how pleased I am that you're both back on the air talking about books. I love the podcasts, even the 1981 corporate training video music interludes. I've particularly, what? i particularly enjoyed the combination of two authors rather than interviewing them separately, allowing a fascinating dialogue which includes them commenting on each other's books. Recommendation from me, I'd, I'd make other listeners aware of British Library crime classics these are a series of crime novels published by the British Library which have been out of print for years, written by authors from the golden age of crime fiction, many of whom are forgotten. For lovers of, book, of such books who've read everything by Agatha Christie and Dorothy L Sayers, uh, they prove to be a welcome chance to discover other writers of the same era of whom they may have been unaware.
0: Now, I want to mention this from Jackie Connor and then we'll be on with the show yeah. uh, with guests... Uh, Jackie says, I'm listening to one of your book podcasts where Matt scoffs at the very <laughs> existence of the beloved Walter the hot water bottle.
1: I did, I mean, because it is so unbelievable that there would be a boy who could turn into a hot water bottle. So this bottle. started
0: with Torchy the Battery Boy, whose yes. special power is that he's a light and yeah. a torch. <laughs> and then we heard about Walter, whose main superpower is that he's a water bottle.
1: Fear not, everyone, I'm here. Well, says Jackie,
0: Walter does exist and I provide evidence. And there's a there's a photograph. Oh, right, yes. Okay. Things were more innocent in the late 50s and 60s and a child could feel happy with such tales. I also loved most Enid Blyton books, The Secret Seven, Mallory Towers, St Clair's, with the ever-wise headmistress Miss Theobald spouting such inspirational sayings to children as, You'll get a lot out of your time at St Clair's. See that you give a lot back.
1: Love the voice. Well Stirring stuff. My memories are of reading these books with cups of Born Vita. Born Vita? Is that... R- not Rye Vita, No. Is Maybe it's... that's Bourneville with a Rivita. Did they call it <laughs> Born Vita?
0: Was that a thing? Together anyway, at last. Really? And quite happy as an onlooker into what was clearly middle class England. And there's a photograph of Walter the, H- the water Yes
1: yeah, I I d I don't s I still don't see what the point of the boy unless basically is it a bit like uh, Toy Story where the water bottle comes to life? Uh a bit like uh the uh spaceman, whatever it his could name be. was. Well yes. I suppose,
0: I suppose it could be. And I think Born Vita was like Horlicks. Okay. It, was, it was like a nighttime milky drink.
1: Oh, I right. Um, yes, I don't remember that at all. Um, Maybe what? they got
0: it by mixing Bourneville Maybe- chocolate with Rivita, <laughs> stirring it all up. And turning it into Please do write to us about Born Vita. Please don't. Uh, And if you're a fan of Walter or Torchy the Battery Boy, uh, we'd like to hear from you. Yes. Uh, And if you want to talk about the book that you're uh, reading, the books that you would like us to review, uh, this just in. (laughs) Born Vita. Oh, right. Is a brand of malted and chocolate malt drink uh, manufactured by Cadbury's it's sold in Europe, North America, as well as India, Nepal, Bangladesh, Nigeria. Blah, blah, blah. The original recipe included full cream milk, fresh eggs, malt and chocolate. First uh, manufactured and sold in Australia in 1933. Discontinued in the UK in 2008. The drink was named by Cadbury, which is derived from Bourneville, the model village, which of is course. the site of the Cadbury factory. And then just adding Vita. For no reason. For no reason
1: at all. So, so what we're basically saying is that people around the world who are listening to this podcast... will go, I we'll have go, oh, Born Vita. Of course Vita. I know what Born Vita is, yes. Mugs. Well, you know, idiots. <laughs>
0: Fools. <laughs> However, you know, if Cadbury's would like to get in touch, we're very happy to provide yes. all kinds of <laughs> even support the, for their even products. The,
1: if you want to relaunch your drink... In this country, we could do a new oh, feature, absolutely. Yeah.
0: Discontinued products. <laughs> I'd like to say, I always eat an Aztec bar before oh, breakfast. Aztec bars, brilliant. Yes, anyway. It's books of the year at yahoo.com. And uh, let's introduce you uh, to our guests. A ladder to the sky is brand new from John Boyne. Hello, John. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you. It's very nice to see you. Good to see you again. And you're looking perky... I would say, John's in shorts <laughs> now. That you know, given that it's September, <laughs> I think that says brave.
2: Yeah. Well, I think I have the perfect legs for radio. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's true. But that's a bit like having a, a soft-top sports car and, and having the top down in, like, November. Just saying, I'm definitely taking I'm, I'm clinging
1: on. I'm clinging on to summer, <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, in long trousers, Sean Usher, uh, who has
1: compiled,
0: I mean, cur- curated what... What's the right word? Do you think? Assemble. What, what am I?
3: I've been trying to what work out for years. Spe- so, what I am? It says a compiler.
0: S- compiler of yeah. speeches of note: a celebration of the old, new, and unspoken. Uh, this is a this is a beautiful kind of hefty tome, um, uh, and we'll we'll hear from uh, from Sean's going to pick a few, and uh, we'll discuss that. John, uh, we'll talk about a letter to the sky, but do you, uh, do you want to describe both covers, please? Yes.
1: Please? So uh, let's start with Sean's, which, as you say, it is hefty. Basically, um, my instinct is there's going to be this is going to be given as a Christmas present quite a lot by people with strong and backs. As soon as you feel this, you're going to go, oh, this feels a little expensive. And then you want to add it as a book, which is great, obviously, as a gift. Um, so, Speeches of Note, uh, it's the s- similar design to the uh, letter of Note, which uh, those of us who uh, have loved Sean Usher's work in the past will be. Uh, familiar with that and it's sort of a a green colour there that I've not really done very well with the description of the green Uh, but uh, speeches of note a celebration of the old new and unspoken compiled by sean usher in gold and then we've got john's book which uh the title dominates the front of this uh cover so a ladder to the sky in a really nice font i don't know whether john had any choice over the font uh, and then we've got uh, a picture of a very dashing uh man with a cigarette uh nonchalantly in his hand yes Did you have any
2: say over the font? I would imagine, John, you have fingers in every pie. Uh, Well, I remember seeing about seven or eight different uh, jacket designs with different fonts, so I suppose I had my my two penny worth anyway. But I think it has the spirit of the book on the cover, don't you think? I think so. It has that sort of, you know, 50s Italian, even though it's not set in the 50s in Italy, but it has that kind of old world because this young man, you know, cool, funky. Okay, well, tell us about The
0: Young Man. Tell us about A Ladder to the Sky and uh, the world you're taking us to here.
2: Well, it's uh, a novel with... The central character is a guy called Morris Swift, who we meet when he's very young. He's uh, about 20. He's desperate to be a writer. He's always wanted to be a writer. He has talent, but he has no imagination which is always a, a painful thing for a writer. So he tends to attach himself to more successful writers and different people trying to kind of steal their lives or steal their stories. With writers, it's about trying to introduce himself to the, to the people that can help him. And with other people, it's really about just taking what he can from them. So it, we follow him over really about 30 years from, as I say, about 20 to late middle age as his career has ups and downs along the way and the people who are unlucky enough really to cross his path. Why are they unlucky? Mostly because he kind of destroys their lives, you know, oh, that. and uh, you know, and bumps a couple of them off. So uh, you know, that doesn't—that's not very helpful to them. So they—they uh, they find they're very easily seduced by him. He's very charming. He's very handsome. And he seems to know how to just, you know, how to grab somebody, how to, how to get their attention. And they become just completely infatuated by him usually and uh, reveal their secrets to him, which is uh, if you've been hiding a secret maybe for 40 years, as in the first section of the book, um, a German novelist called Eric Ackerman has been, then that secret is probably going to find its way out. Yeah, just explain a little bit. I mean, maybe that would be quite an interesting way of, uh, of finding out a bit more about Morris
0: and explain how he works, because this, this is the first story, how he kind of wheedles his
2: way into Eric's yeah. life, because that's a, you know it's a very shocking story that Eric tells him. The first third of the novel is set around this guy, Eric Ackman, who's in his 70s, set in 1988. He has been a, a novelist all his life, hasn't been particularly successful, but has been well thought of. But then at this uh, advanced stage, he's won a major literary award and he's everybody's new favourite discovery. He's on an eight-city tour around the world uh, when he meets uh, Morris in a hotel in Berlin. Morris is a waiter. And Morris comes up to him, says, you know, you're my favourite writer, uh, flatters him enormously. Uh, Eric has lived a life of celibacy, really, because of something that happened to him 40 years earlier during the war. He's always admitted he was he was in the Hitler youth. He was part of the Wehrmacht, as you had to be back then. But um, he has lived a supposedly honourable life since then. But because of something that happened then he has chosen never to find love again. And he has, um, the minute he meets this boy he's just completely infatuated and all of his history suddenly starts to come to the fore and he wants to well, it's up to the reader to see whether it's time that he sort of unburdens himself of his secrets or whether Morris is just very adept at dragging them out of him. But over the course of maybe about 100 pages and six months together, Eric, whose life is finally meaning something, has achieved enormous success, uh, is, is brought low by, by this yeah. young man. Is, is, is Morris a psychopath? I think he's a sociopath, really. Okay. You know, he he he, he, he all he, there's something that he just always has wanted and nobody has encouraged him. His parents aren't interested in him being a writer. And there there is something about the fact that if you desperately want something, but you know that you're just not good enough at it. I mean, I think every writer would remember when they were, say, a teenager and thinking, this is what I want to be, but am I good enough? And if you have to face the possibility that you're just not and you might have to do something else with your life, that could be hard, but... Most people would sort of put that energy into something else. What he does is decide, I'm not going to let it get away. I'm still going, I'm going to destroy other people to get it. Is there a section uh, that you could read? Is there a little uh, bit yeah, from a, a to the bit. sky
0: that you, could, uh, that you could do for us?
2: There's um, a point just after Morris's novel, first novel, has been published. And he has gone to Italy with his new mentor, uh, an American writer called Dash Hardy, and they're staying with Gore Vidal uh, for a night. The real Gore the Vidal. The real Gore Vidal okay. in, um, on the Amalfi Coast. And in the book, the only person who can kind of see through Morris is Gore. And um, this is a short um, section in it, but I'll, I'll just read a little bit from it. Over dinner, the discussion turned to Morris's novel... Gore had avoided making any direct reference to it all afternoon, but Howard, who had returned home in disarray, having had his wallet stolen in a cafe, asked when it would be published. Oh, but it's already out, said Dash, delighted that the conversation was turning to his protégé, which is far more appealing than the lecture on the Emperor Galba that Gore had been delivering for almost 40 minutes. The British edition, that is, and some of the European ones, but the Americans don't publish till September. That's where you come in, Gore. "'Me?' asked Gore, lifting a prawn from his plate and shelling it in a trio of expert movements. "'What have I got to do in anything?' "'We thought you might offer an endorsement. You don't mind our asking, do you?' "'We being Morris and I.' "'Is that what you hoped for, Morris? Did you hope that I might endorse your novel?' "'Actually, I'd prefer if you didn't,' he replied. "'I wouldn't want you to think that's the only reason I came here tonight.' When Dash suggested you might host us for dinner, I knew I would cancel anything on my calendar to attend. I've been an admirer of yours for many years, and the opportunity to meet you was one that was too good to pass up. But I wouldn't want you to think that I came here only to exploit your good nature. Gore couldn't help but laugh at the suggestion. Many outrageous things had been said about him over the years, thousands of unkind comments, but nobody had ever had the bad manners to accuse him of having a good nature.
0: Uh, that's John Boyne reading from *A Ladder to the Sky*. Matt, would uh, I know? I know that you loved it because oh you goodness. told me about it. But I tell me how much it. you loved
1: it. Yes, I, and and this is this is a book that I would be stopping myself from reading because I realised I was going to devour this in a matter of a couple of days, and I and I wanted to be able to make it last as long as as long as I could, and I was savoring everything. And I was also, as I was reading it, thinking, why why am I connecting with this so strongly? And I, I my instinct was that it was the character and it's it's morris um who, who we've already been speaking about who uh sociopath it certainly comes closer to, to describing how how he behaves and i thought why why am i loving spending time with this guy who is deeply unpleasant and it's because, bluntly, when you, when you create a character like that, when you create someone who is deeply unpleasant and yet you want to spend time with him, the kind of person that you would not want to be physically with if you were stuck in a lift with him or stuck on a really long train journey with, but it is so much fun being with him where you're just reading about him. The, the, the sequence you've, sp- you've spoken about there with uh, Gore Vidal, there's actually... There's a, there's, um, Gore Vidal then confronts Morris in his bedroom... Uh, later on in the book and it felt to, as I was reading it and this I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm alone in this it felt like a boss fight in a video game where in a video game in order to get to the next level you have to have a boss fight against this really really difficult opponent and it felt like that it felt like Gore Vidal, unbelievably rude against Morris unbelievably rude and it is so much fun seeing someone who has been unbelievably rude to other people i.e. Morris getting taken down by Gore Vidal. so much for I adored adored this book and I, I i suppose my question to you john which is basically going to be tell us about how great you are job um is is, <laughs> is he's not, t- he's not much t- much like much do we have <laughs> <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> is when, when you're because oh, i know you you read prodigiously as well Am I right in thinking that you that you will connect as strongly with characters who are thoroughly unlikable as well as much as perhaps even more so than than people who are that are pleasant?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I was thinking a lot about things like the Talented Mr. Ripley when mm. I wrote this, and even Hannibal Lecter. You know, the kind of characters who are sort of anti heroes in the book. But you're you're kind of you're kind of willing the monsterly as the narr- as the reader to see you know just how bad they can get and. Uh, I, I was challenging myself a lot of the time during this to to see how many evil things I could make him do, and still hopefully have the reader kind of chuckling along mm. a little bit you know um, so it's it 's kind of fun to do that i haven 't written a lot about that sort of really m- malevolent no-conscience character before.
1: It's it's funny you should say Hannibal Lecter because I, I was reading it as a serial killer book. It felt like there were, there were bits in the book where it felt like that bit in Silence of the Lambs where you've got this strange bloke who's struggling to get a settee into his van and you're screaming at the woman, don't get in the van, don't get in the van. And it's the same with this. There, were, there, was, there was sequences where characters will be telling Morris some innermost thought or a secret or an idea for a book, and you would be like, don't do that. Yeah. This guy does bad things with your thoughts. Yeah, and
2: and I think the reader, because with each section, as we move forward 10 years each time and see the next person that he's kind of picking on, the reader is more in tune with that and is, is, is kind of shaking their head, hopefully, and going, no, 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 let it stop. But, see, if you had uh, as
0: much fun writing it as we are reading it, uh, I'm sure everyone is asking the same question, but where did Morris come from?
2: Well, you know, I've been publishing novels for almost 20 years now, so I've seen a lot along the way in terms of writers and um, ambition and how it can be um, twisted a little bit at times and how people behave, you know, at festivals and and so on. And, you know, I've had experiences where maybe somebody has attached themselves to me and, and maybe, you know, not always for the most honourable reasons. And I suppose, you know, Sometimes one also behaves with in in less honourable ways as well, and you wonder why did I why do I allow myself to be manipulated in that way? Um, so it came a little bit from that. It came from one experience in particular, maybe where I I felt um, that somebody had kind of treated me um, quite badly, but I I was also party to that behaviour, you know. And I was asking myself, like the Eric character does at the end of the first section, what what's what's wrong with my life what's wrong with me What what am i missing that i could be so easily flattered and make a fool of myself really so something that happens to you eventually can work its way
0: into a novel maybe over a period of years and maybe yeah, in th- an unexpected way but there's there's a there's a there's a new st- i mean I, I don't know if you could have written this 10 years ago i guess is what i'm saying no i, I
2: don't think I, I don't think i would have then um but, you know, I mean, recently, actually, there was there was a a, a writer in Dublin who on Twitter kind of criticised me for writing this book, you know, because it's so um, it, it's taken a, an experience with a person and then turned it into or a, as the inspiration for a novel. But like writers have been doing that for hmm. two, three hundred years. You know, that's where most novels come from, something that happens in your life and it triggers some idea. And you don't write that whole story, but you take it as an inspiration and, and it leads you leads you towards a novel. There's nothing particularly original
0: about it. Are, are there rules, sort of unspoken, unwritten rules about, you know, if you mix fictional characters with real characters, oh, you've just read a section mm. with, with Gore Vidal, are there
2: limits to what you can do or is pretty much everything fair game, really? Well, I think you want to present them exactly as you think they sh- that they were. You know, since my first novel, I've often used real characters, real real life figures in my books. And I've never tried to turn them into someone I didn't think they were. So um, even with like my most recent children's book, The Boy at the Top of the Mountain, where Hitler appears in it quite a lot through it. And you, you try to imagine who he was. It's not who he was. It's not who Gore Vidal was. It's my fictional representation of of who I think they might be. Um so I, I think you just have to be to be honest to that. But the other rules are about sort of, you know, literary ownership that, you know, if you and I are sitting down having a cup of coffee and you you tell me a story, but you haven't written that story down, who who owns that then? You know, I mean is it is it still yours? Is it mine to do with what I want? And that's open to debate, you know, but um well, it's mine. <laughs> well <laughs> Well it's one reason why, you know, when writers say, So what are you working on? You know, they'll people will generally which say which I, which I oh, just, just now. Just say, Yeah, yeah. new books, know, uh, yeah, just in a you know, just starting starting. But you don't generally say, Oh well it's about this and this happens and this happens and this happens. Okay, all right. I, I'm just aware that I'm doing a festival that you're at in a couple of weeks. That's right, Apple, yes. Apple Door Festival.
0: I'm going to first of all check my behaviour. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to be absolutely certain <laughs> I don't do anything that which I behave like some of the characters in your uh, in your book. And if I tell you anything, um, then it's, it's mine. probably wise not to. Okay. All right. <laughs> uh, having read um, your last couple of books, The History of Loneliness and Heart's Invisible Furies, would it be right to say that your books are getting more personal? Every book is personal, but is there more you know so I was struck you hadn't written about Ireland hmm. for a long time and you did that with history of Loneliness. if maybe I'm completely wrong no, it feels con-
2: as though there's there's more of your heart come, or you're showing us more than you used to you're completely right actually because in my in the first say 10 years of my publishing life uh, I deliberately sort of left myself out of stories entirely. I took historical events and wrote them into fiction. And I, I said to myself back then that I thought um, I should leave myself out in my own experiences, in my own world and people I know and just make it all up, really. And then I got to a place in my life, I guess, maybe where I just felt more confident as a writer, more experienced and when I wrote History of Loneliness and started writing about Ireland and started writing about the abuse scandals in the church and really started delving into my own childhood and things that had happened, it opened a floodgate then of saying, okay, now I can do this. Don't think I could have done it when I was 25 or 30, but I'm not 25 or 30 now. And I felt ready to do it. And since then, yeah, every book has become much more personal. And do you think that's likely to continue? I think it probably will. Yeah. Um, I, I I see no reason why not. I think n- now I feel okay about doing that about bringing myself into the stories. Um, but maybe not always. You know, there will, there'll be a book that just you just want to tell a story that has nothing yeah. to do with you. You write at an astonishing rate. You
0: you read a lot. You review a lot. You do one book a year, sometimes two books. Goodness me. A year. I mean, it's astonishing. So okay, I'm trying not to say how do you do it because that that's, that sounds almost as bad as Matt's.
2: Yeah. How come you're so great?
0: Do you want me to ask him? Yeah, yeah. good. How do you do it? Thank you, Sean.
2: Um, <laughs> well, I mean, I just write all the time, and I don't have another job, and I get up early in the morning, and uh, I I really enjoy it. Is the thing you know? I don't. I never see it as a big chore, but also. You know, I think sometimes today we, we often sell books on the basis of this took three years, four years, five years. You know, Great Expectations was written in a year. David Copperfield was written in a year and he had to, you know, submit them to the magazine each each month. It's actually not an impossible task to write a novel in a year. Philip Roth made a wrote a book every year. Woody Allen made a movie every year. These are not impossible things. I think sometimes people exaggerate how yeah. how, how complicated it can be.
0: I know what you do, Sean, is is, is different, but in terms of Work rate and structure and hours and so on. How long has, has this book taken for you to put together? It's
3: funny, I was speaking to my wife last night about this. So I was in a, having a moment of despair about my my next book and I was just saying I I really get annoyed when I meet people who are um, efficient <laughs> when it comes to writing books because I find it really, really difficult. And I work all hours every day, I think because I know, I I, I don't know, this this book took me two years and it really shouldn't have. Um, and I thought I was just, I could get paralysed with fear and i'm always comparing myself against my last book and i'm just i think it's it's also getting the balance right in these books because either all of my books have been anthologies of um, documents of kind of windows into the past and i'm i'm just desperate to make them as balanced as they possibly can be and i I just i just get really panicked
0: Uh, have you and have you thought of taking a story or a speech or a letter and turning it into a piece of fiction
3: I have, but I just don't think I've got the the chops for it. I'm I'm in awe of novelists. Um, having, having just I've just spent three days listening. I've, it's the first ever book actually I've I've listened to on an audio book, um, "A Ladder to the Sky," and I'm just in awe of how you can put that sort of thing together. The the planning and the the dialogue and um, it's just incredible. I, I, this <laughs> this is where I'm most comfortable doing these kinds of books. There's
0: a uh, there's a line here, John, uh, early on. I think this is Eric the. German writer who you were mentioning, uh, who we spend a lot of time with right at the beginning. Uh, And he's being uh, being questioned by Morris. And uh, he says, the more you read, the more you write, the more the ideas will appear. They'll fall like confetti around your head and your only difficulty will be deciding which ones to catch and which to let fall to the floor. Is that, I mean, that struck me as truthful, you know, that struck me as a little bit of you in, in there.
2: Yeah, definitely. That is how I feel. I think, it, to me, the Im- imagination, the creative mind, is just another muscle, that if you are reading and writing constantly, then you are you are attuned to ideas, you are attuned to the imagination. And I, I've been very fortunate that I, I've never really struggled for ideas in the way that Morris does in this. Um, and But I'd write down ideas all the time. 99 out of 100 of them would be useless, and they'll go nowhere. But there'll be one that will. And i I just find myself always open to it, you know walking down the street i'm a, i'm I'm aware of things, I'm aware of conversation, I'm aware of people, and I think that's the writer's job to to be that way that
1: That felt what was at the root of this book was the importance of ideas and how how valuable they are and how they they seem to, they seem to fall in your lap, John. And and yet you're saying this has come from from the from the work ethic that you've had that sort of the, it's, it's sort of like the Gary Player quote about you know I the luckier I get or I get luckier because I practice so much yes. so the more I practice the luckier I get and I, I, I'm really interested in that sort of the ethics of writers as far as ideas are concerned because if they are gold dust then obviously you want to keep them to yourself and there's a, and you know if you talk talk to a stand up comedian and they they will tell you that I don't like going to see other stand up comics, because there is a danger they will say something that I 'll think oh, that 's a great line, and I could use that, and I could just turn it a little bit and they know that they can 't do that because that would be a, a so frowned upon and I wonder whether there's a, a similar kind of ethics as far as writers are concerned, because you all know how 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 valuable ideas are, how they are at the root of everything well, I know there are some writers who, who don 't read while they 're writing a novel uh,
2: or some novelists who just read nonfiction. And some of them do that because they don't want to be influenced by, by what they're reading at all. I've just never felt that way. Reading and writing have always been completely connected to me. And I, I don't think I could do one without doing the other. But I don't, I mean, I don't know how much influence the reading I have has on what I write. But I don't believe I've ever consciously, you know, stolen anything. Um, or at least nobody's ever, ever said I have. So I just think it's important to me. But every writer, you know, works in a different way. And I couldn't be doing one without doing the other. Uh, You're listening to the Books of the Year podcast. Uh, A
0: Ladder to the Sky is new from John Boyne, uh, which is out. Our other book is Speeches of Note, uh, which is new from Sean Usher, and we'll do more in just a second. It's your Books of the Year podcast, our latest edition with A Ladder to the Sky by John Boyne and Sean Usher's... I can't really pick it up in one hand. That's how I, well heavy it is, and how feeble I am. <laughs> uh, speeches of note: a celebration of the old, new, and unspoken. So we've already established that. First of all, you did letters of note, um, and still doing it really. Uh, and also, this took two years. Just um, tell us the process by which we've ended up with this book, Sean.
3: So this all—I mean, the whole thing started really with my wife. I, I fell in love with my wife by letter, like fif- fifteen years ago. I hope I got that right. It's it's something like 15 years ago. I remember it well. Uh, She was living in Spain for a year and we kept in touch by letter. So I just became obsessed with letter writing. And then I started Letters of Note, the website, which became a book. And then while I was um, researching that book, I found a memo uh, written by President Nixon's chief of staff, which was to be read by Nixon should... um, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin get stranded on the moon. This really chilling speech that he was going to give. And as soon as I found that speech I thought maybe there there must be a book to be made of speeches that aren't that well known, speeches that weren't delivered, you know, speeches that aren't kind of circulated as much as they should be for reasons, you know, you know that, that can't be explained really. Um, so I just kind of put that back in the back of my mind and then um, a couple of years ago decided to, to do speeches of note so I've been trying to find I mean there are plenty of books of speeches so I've, been, I've tried to find a new angle and kind of fi- find a gap and I think the gap is this it's, it's speeches that although you will find you know, famous speeches in there it's, they're, they're surrounded by speeches that haven't been celebrated I think that's enough
0: the, I think that's the joy of the book is that you're right we've probably got somewhere or we have access to that, you know people might instantly just think of churchill or yeah. some kind of party conference speeches and those kind of I things. i have a dream
3: yeah. uh mm-hmm. yes
0: but actually and as you said there's uh, there are some very famous speeches in here and that's mandela's mm-hmm. speech when he becomes president of south africa but the remarkable thing about this is the stuff that we've never seen before with people we've never heard before mm-hmm. reporting on incidents that we know nothing about so uh i mean i, I scribbled down some as they came along uh sojourner truth uh speaking in eighteen fifty one uh african american former slave escapes former slave yeah um Kermit the frog giving <laughs> him, <laughs> oh, uh, one. A, a, Nick cave giving a speech about love so i mean mm. you your criteria must have been this is interesting, I guess you know i mean that seems to be the there's nothing else that links these
3: not really no, I just follow my gut it's it's served me well since letters of note um and yeah it's just speeches that kind of that move me that that take me to a place i wouldn't have known about before um also it's a, it's a coffee table all my books are coffee table books and I, I try to make it kind of a visual feast as well as a a literary um uh, feast so there's there's pictures of the drafts of the speeches there's photos of these people making the speeches there's we've had commi- um illustrations commit, uh, commissioned for some of these speeches um so it's a, it's a kind of it's a book you can just pick up at any point and uh, are they speeches into. that changed
0: things? I mean, uh, it might have been that it changed a life or the course of history. I mean, is there any connection
3: there? Not really. I mean, th- I, that's, I wasn't trying to avoid that, but th- there are, as I was saying before, there are books literally called speeches that change the world and, and you know, li- speeches that change the course of history. And that's kind of what I wanted to avoid. I, I'd prefer to to listen to speech or to read about speeches that maybe changed a couple of people's lives or, or were interesting for different reasons. Um, there's a speech in there by Theodore Roosevelt. Um, he, was, he was trying to get elected for a second, uh, sorry, third time and he walked out of his hotel one morning just about to give a speech and he was shot. But because he had a spe- his speech in his pocket that was like 70 pages long, uh, all folded up, the bullet went through the speech and was slowed down to the extent where it didn't reach his heart and that bullet stayed in his in his chest for the rest of his life and he he still made the speech before he went to hospital so it's these stories that surround the speeches as well rather than you know i have a dream which is a, an amazing incredible speech
0: john you could use some
2: of these
3: <laughs> stories in your next book <laughs> yeah just
2: i actually when i was looking reading through this book i looked up the stuff about Kermit the frog and mm. the students that um that were giving out and didn't want him to give a, give a speech. I thought it was hilarious the idea of Kermit the frog giving a Just valedictorian... Why
0: would you not want yeah. that? But why but why was why was Kermit asked to give a speech anyway? Why
3: wouldn't you ask Kermit the frog? That's the question. Well, he's
0: not the original <laughs> Kermit the frog. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right,
1: So that's your problem.
0: Well, I know the orig- <laughs> Look, Jim Henson did the original Kermit the Frog, and he passed away. So obviously, it can't be. So ever since then, it's not. Oh right, the same. So it's not
1: the real one, so it doesn't count.
3: But so there was genuine kind of. Upset. I will say. I, sorry, I will say I started to resent Kermit the Frog because that was one of the hardest speeches. Because I have to clear all these speeches to use in the books, which is the hardest part of the whole job. So clearing, like going to Disney and saying, "Can we use one of Kermit the Frog's speeches?" Well, his only speech was, <laughs> was an absolute nightmare.
0: And I, w- I wonder if I mean maybe this distinguishes it from. Letters of note is that where obviously they're designed to be read, mm. these are designed to be heard, and no one can read the Kermit one, for example, without in their head doing a version, <laughs> however imperfect, of Kermit the Frog. I don't know if Matt does a Kermit. Uh, no, you do a Kermit the Frog. No, mine, yes. mine's mine's. Oh, Fozzie, uh, Fozzie Bear! Fozzie. You do Fozzie Bear. Yeah. Don't you? Well, it's halfway between Fozzie Bear and Douglas Heard Oh, I don't
3: know.
0: So, anyway. But, anyway. So. I can do Donald Duck. Can you?
3: Go yeah.
0: <laughs> This is... What an I wasn't expecting this. <laughs> this is... I, I, I think another thing that I was thinking... Well, actually, before we go any further, Sean, is there one that you can read? Obviously, you don't have to do the voice. But is there something that you could just read out that maybe is, is surprising, something that we... That, that, that is new and different that you've brought us in this book?
3: Well, I was going to read the The Moon Disaster... Mm. Is that too obvious? I don't know. No, not at all.
0: So, explain why you've included this.
3: Well, this is this is the one. This is the speech that inspired the book. Is I find it fascinating because it wasn't read. It kind of shows an, uh, an alternative timeline. This, this is what could have happened. It's incredibly chilling. Um, so, this was written by um, Bill Sapphire, the, f- the very famous um, journalist and at one time speechwriter for Nixon. And this was to be read out in nineteen sixty nine in the event of Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin not coming back from the moon. I'll just read some of it. Uh, it's, and it's titled In Event of Moon Disaster, which is just the best title ever for a speech. Fate has ordained that the men who went to the moon to explore in peace will stay on the moon to rest in peace. These brave men, Neil Armstrong and Edwin Aldrin, know that there is no hope for their recovery, but they also know that there is no, there is hope for mankind in their sacrifice. These two men are laying down their lives in mankind's most noble goal, The search for truth and understanding. They will be mourned by their families and friends. They will be mourned by their nation. They will be mourned by the people of the world. They will be mourned by a Mother Earth that dared send two of her sons to the unknown. In their exploration, they stirred the people of the world to feel as one. In their sacrifice, they bind more tightly the brotherhood of man. It goes on, and I like the end where it says, um, the president should telephone each of the widows-to-be. And I've never heard that phrase before. Widows-to-be. It's quite awful. Um, well, it's kind of
0: a contradiction, isn't it, really? but uh, And the only problem with that's it it's quite a nice speech, but it would have been Nixon who was giving it. But yeah, you can't have everything. Yeah.
2: <laughs> These women are having a hard enough day,
1: and then Nixon calls <laughs> you know, so them. Like, on the phone. I understand yeah. you're a widow to be, and I've been told to call you. So I am not a croc. <laughs> Um, Matt, what do you make of this? Are, those for me are the are the gems within this book. Are the are the speeches that were never delivered? We on a on a previous podcast we had Ben Rhodes, who is the mm. um, speechwriter for uh, Obama. President Obama, and in his book he revealed that when they sent the um, SEAL team in to um, assassinate uh, Bin Laden, mm. he'd written four speeches. One of those speeches is obviously the one that was delivered, but there were three others just in case either Bin Laden wasn't there or there were um, members of the SEAL team who were killed. And in your book, there is a speech um, never delivered by the Queen on uh, talking about the outbreak of the Third World War. And... um, it, it, what struck me reading that, apart from the apart from the fact that you're reading uh, a speech that had never been delivered, was her message to to the British people, which was take in the homeless, take in mm-hmm. people who don't have a home now, because. This is coming, and if ever there were a time to show our humanity to to those who are less fortunate than ourselves and it as I was reading it I, it, it reminded me of the speech that she gave um, after nine eleven where she talked about the the grief that we feel now is the price that we pay for love, which such a great line and and within within that speech that she was making that's that sign of humanity that uh, it absolutely touched
3: me yeah. As it just makes me. It, it doesn't make me sick, but I'm just. I'm. I'm fascinated to think about all the speeches that have never been made, that drafts of which are lying in archives mm. all over the world. You know, it's, it's it's such an amazing way to 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 see these alternative um, t- timelines, and that's. It was the same with the letters of note. I was, I found quite a few letters that were written but never sent. There's something really kind of appealing about these messages that never kind of made it.
0: Some of them are astonishing for the fact they were recorded at all. The first speech that's in here. Which you titled "I Killed a Solitary Man" is from a guy called George Manley in Wicklow, Mm -hmm. uh, from 1738, who is hanged for uh, murder, but that he he clearly makes a speech at the gallows, which Mm -hmm. someone recorded. This is 1738, Mm. and to hear that voice come back through the centuries is is really striking. Yeah, where did you find that?
3: Um, I found that in a in a really old newspaper that had recorded recorded it at the time, um, and I presume that's where it was rec- recorded by um, someone who worked for the paper. It's, it's hard to know. There's also a speech by Sojourner Truth that you mentioned before, the ex-slave who became a campaigner for for equal equal rights. Um, and that particular speech of hers, there's there's three different versions because no one's really sure which one is the most accurate. But the one I've put in here is considered to be the most accurate. Um, but they're they they're fundamentally the same kind of message. Um, it's just a matter of picking the the one that was had been deemed the most. Accurate. Yeah. But it's it's hard to know.
0: John, do you do you listen to speeches? Are there any speeches that you've heard that you th- you know like a proper like a set piece speech where you thought that was memorable? I I wa- I just wonder if we if we listen in different ways now if we're we're not used we don't go to political rallies we don't hear sermons as much, you know, whether we expect the same from a speech.
2: I remember going to the, um, to College Green in Dublin when um, President Clinton came over and when he, was giving, when, he, when he was president, and it was around the time when um, the troubles were being sorted out effectively and um, there was peace arriving in Northern Ireland and Clinton came and he gave a big speech and everybody came out to hear it and there was something, you know, amazing about that. Uh, it's the first time I'd seen sort of a U.S. president and all that stuff around it, but also it felt like Ireland was going through such a, a moment of change and a moment of positivity. So, so that that was that was a good one. Um, but then a couple of weeks ago, you know, like the Pope came to Dublin, and there was a lot of uh, anticipation about the speech that he would give, uh, which perhaps didn't go as far enough as as people had hoped that it would. Yeah,
0: I wonder also Sean whether we uh, after TED talks, mm. you know, they're they're the speeches that I think. Another generation are particularly used to. Like, is it the same craft? Uh, is it being delivered in just from a, a different format? You know, will there still be as many speeches in the future? I don't know. And what is the speech changing?
3: I think there's more speeches than ever at the moment because it's so easy to give someone a platform. You know, all you need is a, a well, just to, get, to go on YouTube and, and kind of do a live live speech is so easy, and they're getting they're being shared around the world instantly on Twitter and. So I don't think we're going to run out of speeches. Something about TED Talks. I adore TED Talks, or I I I did adore TED Talks more when it first started because it was such an exciting thing. Uh, but it just feels a bit too comfortable for me. You know, the the setting is a bit too. Um, regimented,
1: and I, th- I think that's uh, you. You've hit on something there that that that, that um, resonated with me. Reading a, a couple of these speeches, which is is the is the comfort mm. angle, where and um, there is one speech given uh, by a guy who uh, there's, there's actually a blue plaque to him about um, two blocks from where we're talking right now. Um, uh, an American broadcaster called uh, Edward R. Murrow, um, that's who a, that's a great speech. Yes, yeah. um, and he, um, he, for those that don't know, he came over here and. Uh, Reported on the Blitz, uh, obviously during the Second World War, and reported that back to um, American audiences, and many credit that with part of the reason why the Americans got involved in the Second World War. He gives a speech um, in that is being made in his honour um, to a load of um, TV execs, and I think this speech. Um, there's an abridged version of it in a. There's a George Clooney movie, uh, Good Night and Good that's Luck, right, yeah, and yeah. and I think that that's the, is, the speech yeah. is that abridged version, and it is a. Uh, the epitome of giving an uncomfortable speech or giving uncomfortable truths when it would be very easy to stand up in front of these execs and say, thanks very much, Uh, it's been a difficult job, but, you know, uh, we're all doing the best we can. Mm -hmm. And instead, he absolutely takes that room to task. To be in that room when he is delivering these uncomfortable truths and saying, if we are not... Doing the things that we should be doing, if we are not making people uncomfortable, then we are just is it wires and lights in a box that is mm. all we
3: are yeah it 's those ones that, that they really make a difference you know it 's the ones that go against the grain. I think that if you 're making a speech that makes people uncomfortable you you 've done something right it 's very easy to do no, no it 's not easy i don 't <laughs> want to say speech making is easy because i 've had to give a few speeches through these books and it 's terrifying, uh, but I think it takes a lot more courage to to give a speech like that that's going to rub people up the wrong way, but for the right reasons.
2: A speech of note, surely, would be the one that Donald Trump gave when he came down that escalator to announce running for president. And everybody laughed at his, you know, outrageous comments and his racism. Everybody laughed and we thought it was going to be a big joke. And look where we are now, you know, so sometimes those speeches... Yeah.
3: I agree. I did, I did, I for a split second, I considered putting one of his speeches in the book mm-hmm. just because it, they are... Of note, you know, yes. by, by definition. But I just yes, couldn't bring myself to have Donald Trump mentioned in the book. <laughs>
0: the great thing about the title is you're not saying these are good people or. No, it's, not at all. Or at all. I agree with what this person is saying but you're saying they are They deserve note. to
3: be read, yeah. And they uh, deserve to be experienced.
0: And there is something of the novelist in you, Sean, because I think, because what you say in the introduction is you encourage us to be in their shoes, mm. to be in that room when they are making that speech, not in that kind of anaesthetic TED Talk thing, maybe, but the fact that they don't know how it's going to go. It might be that it's received incredibly badly. Mm. You know, they get booed or, uh, or whatever. So we're, we, you know, if you put your, apart from the Kermit speech... let's let's get beyond that shall we yeah but you know if you try and put yourself in um nick cave's shoes Mm -hmm. or julia gillard when she does that amazing speech in parliament in canberra in 2012 where she really takes the leader of the opposition to Mm -hmm. task for his relentless uh sexist sexism comments which have been you know over over a number uh years uh the um the, the Sojourner Truth one, which which we've mentioned, even Socrates, you know, I can't put myself in Socrates' shoes, but just the fact that you are encouraging <laughs> us to come out of the room that we are uh, and to be where they are and to think this might not go well just gives a, a little, you know, a frisson, I think, to the page.
3: Exactly, that's what it's all about. It's, it's about these emotions that people feel as they're making a speech. And I want to, That's why I love the fact that there are pictures in there and, and facsimiles of drafts, because it just adds to the whole experience and it gives you a bigger window into these moments in history.
0: So um, we have uh, questions to uh, conclude every uh, every podcast. Ready? Yep. Okay. I bet you love these
2: questions. really. No, I don't. <laughs> uh, John, the last book you really, really enjoyed? Uh, that would be Bridge of Clay by Marcus Zusak, who of course is best known for The Book Thief. I just finished reading it a couple of days ago and it took him, I mean, I was saying about books taking a long time to write, this took him a long time to write, but this one is worth the it was worth it. It's a really wonderful Okay, And we're hoping that he's going to be on a uh, future podcast. Sean, last book you
0: really, really enjoyed.
3: Apart from John's, it would be um, In Good. Miniature. <laughs> well done. <laughs> Good. It's um, In Miniature, which is Simon Garfield's next book. I, I know Simon Garfield Ooh. since he did To The Letter. That came out yes. the same day as yeah, yeah, yeah. Letters of Note. Um, and I've just finished an advanced copy of his next book, In Miniature, which is all about things that have been kind of shrunk. Uh, so it's a celebration of things... Miniature. And
0: he and he wrote Nation's favourite, which was like an examination yes. of yes, he did. He did of course, of Radio he one.
3: Seem to remember you coming and the book about wrestling. And he's done yeah, incredible yeah, books. Yeah.
0: Is there a book you regularly give as a gift? The Go Between by L. P. Hartley. Sean, no, one of your own.
3: <laughs> I was going to say letters of note, but that, that would. Be uh, what,
2: what book do you remember being read to you as a child? I remember the Narnia books being read to me when I was in hospital having my appendix out. Did you, and did you like them or did
0: you Who associate it with being loved? <laughs> <by? laughs>
3: love them. Sean. Sure. Just anything by Roald Dahl. Have you ever cried reading a book?
2: Yes, in the last few pages of Smile by Roddy Doyle.
3: I don't think I have. But that's what Matt says. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Yeah, good, good to know that we're I both can't robots. Remember it, never blocked it out.
1: Is there a book on your shelf that you love that no one else does? Yeah, my second novel. <laughs> <laughs> oh god! Oh,
2: oh. The Congress of Rough Riders, published in 2001. (laughs) And I remember the Irish Independent saying something along the lines of, if this is is what novel writing
1: has come to, we're doomed. So Good. So you're over it then, John. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Very much have that pinned up on your noticeable. What about you, Sean?
3: I was genuinely going to say something very similar. It's my third book, More Letters of Rough (laughs) Riders. It flopped, but it's a great, a really good book. Oh, I I love that.
1: Uh, Both of you went for your own (laughs) books. Uh, Whose books, apart from your own, do you own the most of? John. Um, John Irving,
2: Philip Roth and Tyler. I'd say I have the full collection of all of them.
3: Uh, For me, it'd be Ian Banks. I just adore his books. Uh, Where and when do you tend to read the
1: most? My garden. At my desk.
3: Really? At a desk? Yeah. It's Uh, it's, it's weird, isn't
1: it? The first book you bought with your own money? Uh, It was probably a Secret Seven book.
0: Oh, yes. No, definitely, yeah. Do you think The Secret Seven were never quite as good as The
2: Famous Five? No, I thought it was the other way around. I thought The Famous Five, they were... I found those books a little too long for me. The Secret Seven was shorter, and I I, I got on better with them. Okay.
3: I I think mine was actually Famous
1: Five. I can't be be sure. (laughs) 5v7. Yes. Uh, (laughs) Have you ever used a book to try to impress... Basically, this question is in here because I have tried... Using a French book to try to impress a potential partner, and it didn't work. Have have either of you been so shallow as to use a book to try to impress someone?
2: Well, I mean, our own surely. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what do you, What do you do for a living? You know, I did. Well, I I did do a Tinder uh, thing recently, where somebody asked me what I did, and I said I was a writer. And they said, uh, "Would I know anything?" And I decided, "What the hell?" I thought, you know, I said, "Oh, you might know the boy in his striped pajamas." And we were on a date within forty eight hours. So. <laughs> And did, was it effective? Was it good? Uh, no, it didn't. It <laughs> back, <so. laughs> it's terrible.
3: Even so. with the book? Uh, Sorry? Even with the book? Even for, with the book, yeah. Oh dear.
2: Well, it went really badly. You know, the worst line that anybody can ever say to you on a date, I think, is, um, you know, when I was in school, you came in to give a talk to us about books.
3: Oh. And you go... <laughs>
2: I should, I, I should not be here. I should, I should go home right now. Ah, that's a good one. <laughs> that actually happened to me on that date. So, oh, uh,
1: And, uh, Sean, is there, is there a book you've ever used to try to be as shallow as us?
3: No way, no. No? Uh, I, do, I do mention my book to my wife all the time. Does that count?
1: No, it doesn't, because no, no. you're already married. Uh, and a book you would love to step inside, finally. That one, I would go for The
2: Secret History by Donna Tartt.
1: Oh, that
3: is you know a crack- that kind of like yeah.
2: Greek Latin yeah, murder yeah. mystery thing.
3: Um, the uh, The Wasp Factory by Ian Banks, wow, which I, I think great. that's my favourite ever book. Yeah. And I just adore it. I, I can't stop thinking about it. Still, what do you work on next, Sean? At the minute, I'm doing more Letters of Notebooks. Just, I, I can't really say too much about it, but yeah, I'm incredibly busy. Right, but you've already told us that more Letters of Notebooks. <laughs> I, wonder <laughs> what what about, I wonder what it's about. <laughs> yeah, who knows? <laughs> <laughs>
2: Well, we look forward to that. They're not going to flop. No
0: way. Uh, John, you've probably got half a dozen <laughs> things due out before Christmas.
2: Uh, no, nothing, nothing before Christmas, but I'll, I'll have something coming next year, I think, yes. Yeah, well, come on, give us some kind of Well, vague. I haven't written a book for young people in, in a number of years, so I've decided to return to, to the kids for a little bit, uh, perhaps after that date, I don't know. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, so we're going to have a new children's
0: book next year. Uh, John Boyne and Sean Usher, thank you both very much for joining us in our Books of the Year.
2: Thank, thank you. you very much.
0: So thanks to uh, John and to Sean, we'll tell you about our next guests uh, very shortly. But in the brief time that we've just been chatting, yes. more correspondence has been uh, has been coming in, uh, and it's just uh, arrived. More Walter the Hot Bottle news. Diane Hayward just listened to Books of the Year podcast. Well, I remember Walter Hottlebottle. Bottle. Awesome, but a bit weird. Was it Hotle Bottle?
1: Hotle Bottle. Does, that doesn't sound. I think they they've tried too hard there, haven't they?
0: But Kathy but says. Uh, my brother and I loved Walter Bottle 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 Bottle.
1: <laughs> this is just everything's. We don't even know what it's called anymore. I, I my instinct is this is this feels like some fevered dream where actually I, he didn't. But now we've seen pictures of him, it doesn't make. And any Hunter, sense we him. love
0: Simon Matt in the podcast, uh, so we are delighted and have enjoyed every episode. We're like a 1940s couple sitting listening to the wireless on our best chairs in a screenless room. What we are or they are. I don't know whether that's... I think we are, probably. And do you know what? Here we are in the 1940s with our mugs of steaming Born Vita. Born
1: Vita! The choice of anyone listening to this podcast. Uh, Boyd Hilton uh, tweeted about oh, this. Right, yes, Boyd. yes, he loved the uh, New Books of the Year podcast with Kate Atkinson. It's so good, he says. Uh, she's one of the most down-to-earth and unpretentious genius novelists of our time. Uh, and we have been asking, because obviously we are brought to you uh, with uh, WH Smith, um, and there should be a sticker of the books that we feature on this podcast should carry a Books of the Year sticker yeah. if you get them in, uh, in WH Smith. Now, Mandy Fitton went into her local... Local WH Smith's and says, No stickers as yet, but they knew what I meant when I exclaimed, Simon and Matt sent me here. Uh, and Amanda Reed, I've listened to the books of the year this morning. Great interview. I dashed to WH Smith as a direct result of the podcast this afternoon. No sticker, but delighted to get the new Isabel and Day free with the Kate Atkinson at Where HuffParts. the
0: hell is my sticker?
1: Where then? are the stickers? Come on. Demand your sticker. It's human rights time.
0: Liz Bonus, love the podcast. It does create a problem. Where to keep all the new books? We had to downsize four years ago. We've Halved our book collection, but now we're starting to buy again. Kindle is great, but not for books you want to lend or study from. I would like to ask your authors and how do you curate your book collection, especially how to decide which books to get rid of? My head says, decide on how much shelving your house can take and keep it to that. But oh, the heart, says Liz. And it's great to have men discussing books. If Widdettainment is a church, which is the film's podcast of I course, do, with yeah.
1: Mark Cameron, are you a library? a library yeah I'll take that that's fair enough welcome yeah. welcome to our library library definitely and don't forget you can review us on iTunes as well although we only accept five star reviews no less than five stars uh, hallelujah says APH 2018 great name uh, like Laurel and Hardy it's great to hear you two back together again great <coughs> listening you should have a radio show uh, getting me back into reading says otter 38 DWH uh, this is just what I've been waiting for trusted and reliable presenters interviewing interesting people about books I should Be reading. Thanks. Also, well done to the sound engineer. The levels are really well balanced. Unlike so many other podcasts, that's a that's a fine feature. I get the feeling the engineers have been on iTunes. I just looked through the glass. Our engineer's actually disappeared. (laughs) Oh, he's not even there. Um, Um, Rachel Berry, uh,
0: you were sounding very perky on today's new episode. Kate Atkinson always comes across such an intelligent person. I particularly enjoy hearing authors talk about the research they undertake for their books. When I studied for my first degree, first degree, I had access to original government documents issued during the First and Second World Wars at the Bodleian Library. I stumbled across some gems of information and additionally got to hold and read original pamphlets, letters and posters from the time. I wonder if Kate would like a research assistant for her future books. P.S. I wonder if you can adjust the sound only for your own safe hearing levels, Simon. I can be quite loud myself on occasion. I've sneezed and stopped a nursery class of 26 children in their tracks as they play. Uh, as you can imagine, this is no mean feat. Well, Rachel, we've already established that the sound on this podcast is impeccable. Yes, it is. But, Matt, you didn't answer the question that Liz posed about oh, how yes. do you decide what books to get rid of. Well, and it is difficult, particularly since we started this podcast, because, you know, the post person really, really struggled. Oh, oh my they, goodness yes. me.
1: And we, you do have to be ruthless. Yes, yes you do. I, um, I keep the ones that make me look really brainy, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, and obviously anything in a foreign language definitely make sure that that's front and centre so that everyone thinks I'm sophisticated. Um, I tend to get rid... Uh, the first ones I get rid of tend to be the autobiographies. Uh, I get rid of those because m- there aren't many really good ones. The really good ones you definitely keep, but the, the real, particularly sport autobiographies, some of them are a little bit self-serving.
0: Yeah, I, ke- I keep very few. There has to be a special reason, I think, but you can normally find a good home... Uh, from friends, and if I can't, then I walk around the street handing them out.
1: Do you? You you, you prowl through the streets of yeah. North London. And there are, you... some,
0: there are some charity shops that will that love books. Yes. Uh, and if you can't, and if they turn them down, then they have to be get recycled. <laughs> well, I
1: can't think. Of, the charity shop's not going to turn down a book. Shall oh, they we? do. Yes, yeah, some charity really? shops say we don't take books anymore. They don't take books. I know, ludicrous, unbelievable, ludicrous. Uh,
0: anyway, I think we're done. And uh, what we just need to say is that on the next episode, we're going to have a sort of music special, but from non musicians. Okay. Yeah. We're going to have John Niven.
1: Big fan of John Niven. Why? Yes. Uh, pre- previous people who know uh, kill kill your friends. That, what a great book. That well, his was.
0: new book is called "Kill him All." So, yes, that's so kind of, like, once so he's got rid of his, his friends, he's going to get rid of everyone else. <laughs> Thanks a lot, John. And Alan Johnson, uh, former politician, oh, a uh, so Labour minister, uh-huh. uh huh. The man, many people have said to him, you know, why don't you, you'd be a great leader and all that mm. kind of stuff. But everyone thinks that apart from him. So you know, there's the problem. Okay. Uh, and he's got another memoir out, which is in my life, which is a musical memoir. Uh, he's a he ve- was, he,
1: his previous ones have been excellent. Yeah. i haven't read this one yet.
0: So John Niven and Alan Johnson will be on the next edition of Simon Mayer's Books of the Year. Thank you very much indeed for downloading us. Matt, you were a marvel. You were a fabulous...